Josh, and uh, thank you, Mark, for that amazing new dance move. Guys, I'm really excited to begin our Easter series with you. Uh, it's crazy that we're at Easter already in the year. And as Rowan says, we're looking at Easter through the eyes of various different biblical characters. And I don't know if uh, any of you are like me. Have you ever watched a sports game with some friends and, and you supported one team and they supported the other team? Right? And then after the game, the invariable banter kind of starts as you talk about whose team played the best. And you kind of come out of that space and you're like, I'm not really sure you and I watched the same game. Because what you saw and what I saw are two very different games. Maybe, maybe you've had a similar experience in an exam. Have you ever walked out of an exam and seen your smart friends over there and headed that way? Right? Because you know that as soon as you go near them, they're going to tell you how great and easy it was and, and how they cruised through it. And you're actually like, I don't really know if we wrote the same paper together. Right? I had a couple of friends like that as well. See, it's very possible. It's even normal for two people to go through the same event and yet to have totally different experiences of it. This is even true, perhaps especially true, of, of major events or cataclysmic events. Some of you may be too young to remember the 11th of September, 2001, right? But there was, there was an attack on the World Trade Center in the United States. I was 15 years old at the time. Those of you who are good at maths are busy trying to work out how old is he now. Save you the time of 31 now, right? And you can pay attention. I was 15 years old. I'm ashamed to say I was watching Pokemon at the time on ETV, right? And my show was interrupted by this breaking news story about these planes that flew into these buildings in the United States. And unfortunately for my heart, I wasn't very impressed about my show being interrupted. It says a lot about where my heart was at at the time. Right? To me, at that time, it was an inconvenience but what was actually a major world event. Right? To the people in America, this was a huge story. This was the first major assault on American territory in a very long time. To the people who lost loved ones in the September 11 attack, they experienced that at a whole new level. That's a day that they're never, ever going to forget because they come from a very different perspective. And that's what we wanted to do for you in this Easter series, because the story of Jesus and his death on the cross and his resultant resurrection is at the same time the greatest story in all of history. And it's also the most well-known. Right? And as we approach the, this time of year where we specifically remember this monumental moment where Jesus triumphs over sin and death on the cross and frees us from the power of the enemy, grants us forgiveness to our sins, we wanted to look at that story in a different way. We want to see it through different eyes, and so that's a little bit of what we're going to be doing through this series. We're going to look at the event and the story of Jesus living and dying on the cross and rising again through the eyes of different biblical characters, and I trust that as we do that, God's going to show us and highlight for us something that we haven't seen in that story before, and we're going to catch something more of the beauty of what happened in that moment. And tonight, as Rowan said, we're going to look at Mary. For those of you who are astute biblical scholars, you know there are several Marys in the New Testament. We're talking about Mary, the mother of Jesus, right? And although she's actually one of the best known people from the story and the life of Jesus, um, the biblical accounts of her life that we have are, are not that vast, right? There are a couple of references to her. She, she appears uh, quite prevalently in the beginning of Luke. 
So Luke chapters 1 and 2, we see quite a lot of her. In Luke chapter 1, the angel appears to Mary and he gives her this incredible promise that God is going to bring her a child inspired by the Spirit, that the power of the Most High is going to overshadow her, right? And that he, he, she has to call him Jesus, which means he will save his people. It's this promise that she's going to give birth to the Messiah. In Luke chapter 2, we get a few stories from the early life of Jesus. We get a story of his presentation at the temple. We get a story of this time Jesus went to Passover. We obviously have his birth as well. All right. The next time we meet Mary is, is in the beginning of John's gospel, where Jesus goes to a wedding in Cana, and Mary's there, and she has a bit of a role to play there. We'll look at that a little later. A little bit later on, we get a, an account of Mary in the middle of Jesus' ministry, and it's recorded in Matthew 12, Mark 3, and Luke 8, where she and some of their other sons appear during Jesus' ministry. And that's the last time we see Mary until Jesus is on the cross. Right? She appears very briefly in John chapter 19, and then again in Acts chapter 1, after Jesus has ascended. And yet, despite this, what I think is a relatively brief kind of biblical record, the life and the journey of Mary is loaded with so much depth, so much love, power, and, and, and wisdom that we can learn from her and her story in her life. And I was deeply convicted as I, as I was preparing for this message, and I just saw the life of Mary in a new light, what, how she lived and how, how powerful that was. And so I trust as we, as we go through her story tonight, I trust that a little bit of how she lived and what she went through and how she processed the events of Easter will impact us and touch us and we'll see something new about the God that we love and how to serve Him. All right, and so rather than focus and ex expound a particular text in Scripture, I'm going to tell you a little bit of her story and I, and I ask you to go and read it at home. All right, so this next, uh, this next slide is, is actually a picture of my notes as I went through all the different passages on Mary. And if you want to take down some, some passages, I encourage you to do that as I tell you the story. And just go and read it for yourself, and you can see a little bit of, of how she lived and what happens in the story we have of her. But Mary was born into a very Jewish context. Right? She was born into the tribe of Judah and uh, into the nation of Israel. And uh, some of you will probably know this, but the Israelite people were an occupied people. At the time, they were under Roman rule, Roman governance, right? And, uh, and so they were allowed to exist and allowed to express themselves religiously, but they didn't really have a freedom as a people. It's a little bit like what we went through in South Africa in apartheid. They were tolerated, but not loved. Right? They were oppressed and abused, and their rights were denied them because they were a conquered people. That's, that's the setting that Mary is kind of born into. You know, Mary's name actually means bitterness or grief. In the Hebrew language. It's really not a very nice thing to name your child. Right? And, I, and I think what it reflects is it reflects this hope that's been carried in the Jewish people where for 400 years God has actually been silent. God has, there's been no prophets of God for the Jewish people for 400 years. And there's been this expectation that a Messiah would come and, and he hasn't arrived yet. And, and they're under the Roman rule and everything that they hoped they would be is has being denied them, and, and God is not speaking, and the people are beginning to get desperate, and they're, and they're clinging to this promise of Messiah, and there's many of them in the Old Testament, but this is perhaps a classic one that informed the Jewish worldview at that time. It's from Isaiah chapter 9. It says this from verses 6 and 7. It says, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called 
wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace, and of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is, the, this is the picture of the Messiah that the Jewish people are holding to. This is conquering hero that's going to come into their nation, that's going to come into their oppressed people, and is going to abolish the Roman dominance that's over them. And it's going to set himself up, and the government is going to be on his shoulders, and his rule and reign is going to be established, and the Israelite people are going to reign as a people forever under their new king. That's the picture of the Messiah that they're carrying. And for 400 years they've been waiting and God hasn't spoken, and they don't know what's happening, and they're waiting. And so I think it's in that context that Mary gets named with that name that means bitterness. Unfortunately for Mary as well, she, she carries this hope, this hope for the Messiah, but, but her understanding is even more diluted, because as a woman in that time, Jewish women weren't allowed to study. They didn't get to read the Torah. They weren't taught how to read and write. Right? They had to rely on what they heard in the synagogue, what their fathers read to them from, from the scrolls in, in their sort of family quiet times. And so as a result, I think Mary's picture of the Messiah is probably more shaped by the common perception of the people than it is by a, a robust interrogation of the scriptures because there are some scriptures that promise the Messiah coming in a slightly different way, like Isaiah 53. And they didn't see all of that. Right? And the Jewish people had this picture that the Messiah would come as a conquering hero. That's kind of how Mary begins to grow up. And when she becomes a young teenager, this is what happens. Her dad gets together with another guy's dad, and he sees a young man. He says, you know, this young man, he seems to be a very godly man. He's of the tribe of Benjamin. He's a good guy. Right? And we're going to set up a marriage for you, Mary. Probably a young teenager at the time. That's kind of how the Jewish culture worked. You didn't get to date someone. You didn't get to like check out their online profile before you decided whether or not you wanted to go on a date. You get your friends to vet them. Your dad just set you up. Right? And then she was engaged. This young Jewish girl, she's engaged and, and she's now preparing to get married and to start a life of her own, which I'm sure is terribly overwhelming for her. And in this space, suddenly the angel Gabriel appears to her. And she doesn't quite know what's going on. And he appears to her and he says, Mary, favored one of God. And she's like, okay. And then he gives her this, this incredible promise. He says, Mary, I want to let you know that God is going to come upon you. And he is going to bring God, Emmanuel, God with us. He's going to bring him into this world through you. That you are going to become pregnant by the Holy Spirit. You're going to have a son and you are to name him Jesus because it means the one who will save his people. God's messenger arrives to her and gives her this incredible promise that the Messiah that they've been waiting for for 400 years is going to come through her, this little teenage girl. Now this is, this is quite, I mean, this must be terrifying, to be very honest. And Mary's response is, is really remarkable. After she, she asks how this is going to happen and the angel explains it to her, she says, let it be as you have said to your servants. She responds with this, this faith response, even despite the, the deep confusion that must be going on in her mind. And, and I want you to just begin to think, what happens now when she actually starts to show that she's pregnant? And the people around her begin to notice that her belly begins to swell. She's not married yet. 
Right? Now, our, in our culture, sex before marriage, it's, it's a little bit taboo in the church. We don't, we don't really endorse that. We don't endorse that at all, in case you're wondering. Right? But it happens all around us in society and in our culture. In Jewish culture, this was very taboo. It's, it's a little bit like our modern-day Amish community. I want you to imagine a little Amish girl getting pregnant before she was married. There's a huge social stigma that gets attached to that. But her answer isn't, I'm really sorry, I, I had a slip, a, a lapse in judgment. No, she has to explain to people, and she has to say, guys, God appeared to me, and God has made me pregnant. How do you think that's going to go down? Have any of you ever tried that excuse? I, ho- I hope you haven't had to. But I can promise you, I don't think many people are going to believe you when you tell them the reason you're pregnant is because God has made you pregnant. Imagine the conversation she's got to have with her fiancé, Joseph. When she goes up to him and she says, like, Joseph, God said to me that he is going to impregnate me. And this baby that you can see in me, I promise you, I haven't been unfaithful. I really doubt He's going to believe her off the bat. I, I can just imagine what that would be like if Glenda and I had to have that conversation. Right? It would be a really challenging space. That would really test the depth of the trust that we have for one another. And I'm sure Joseph kind of is really battling with this. And there's a strain in their relationship. And Joseph kind of goes away and he, has, he dreams. He goes to sleep. And in a dream, God appears to him. And as a faithful man of God, he chooses to believe this communication that God has given him in a dream, which is a real grace for Mary. And he he recognizes God is at work. But God hasn't appeared to anyone else in their community. She's still a scandal in her family. She's a bit of a pariah. People don't want to talk to her. She's losing her friends. And then then King Herod, the Roman emperor, he decides, no, we're going to do a census. And our censuses in those days are not like these days. They don't send people around to your house and ask you a couple of questions, stick a few boxes, and you carry on. They said, what we need to do, all of you, we need you to go back to the town or the city in which you were born. Right? Now, it's easy for us. We hop on a plane, and we go wherever we need to go. It costs us a bit of money. Right? For them, they have to travel by donkey. It takes them a long time. But can you imagine what's happening? Because there's a scandal going on, and now Joseph says, look, actually, Mary and I, we're going we're gonna to go off to Bethlehem. And they're all thinking, yeah, sure, you're going for the census. Yeah, you're just trying to elope and get out of the awkwardness of this situation. So, you know, that, that's what they're busy going through at the moment. And off they go. They, go. they go through to Bethlehem. And you know what happens when they get there, right? They get there, there's nowhere for them to stay. And so they have to, they have to find this manger, this kind of stable area. Right? And there are horses and animals and sheep and everything everywhere. The place probably smells like animal poo, right? There's all kind of horse dung on the floor. And Joseph has to get some straw out. And, and that's where the Savior of the world gets born into a manger full of straw. Right? And if that, that wasn't bad enough, within the first couple of days of giving birth to Jesus, he's still this infant newborn. Then God appears to Joseph in a dream, and he says, Joseph, you need to move. You need to go to Egypt. And so off they, they pack up their whole life. Joseph's a carpenter by trade, but he doesn't get a chance to settle anywhere. Off he goes, off on his way to Egypt, because Herod has decided to murder all the babies two years and under just to make sure that Jesus dies. And they go off to Egypt. They have to stay in Egypt for two years. And after two years, God says it's okay to come back to Israel. And so they go back to Nazareth. They go back to the place where they were originally from. 
And you can imagine when they get back, everyone kind of greets them. They're really excited that they're there. But there's still this, this deep skepticism about how Jesus was conceived. No one really believes Mary's story at all because, let's be honest, that nev- doesn't really happen. It's never really happened before. We all know that's a lie. Right? And she can claim that it was God, but we all know she's really just deluding herself. And so she's trying to build a home now, and she knows there are people sort of skinnering behind her back all over the space. It doesn't stay like that forever. Time begins to pass. Jesus begins to grow up. He learns to walk. He learns to run. He learns to play. He learns to speak. He goes off to, to the Torah school where he studies the Torah with the other boys that are his own age. He begins to make friends. He loves. He laughs. He mourns and he cries. And all along, he's, he's just a normal boy, but he's also he's slightly different. He, he seems to be kinder. He seems to be a little bit more gracious. He seems to have wisdom beyond his years. But he's still living as a normal boy. Every year, the family, every Jewish family would go through to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover festival. It was a festival that lasted eight days where the Jewish people remembered how God saved them out of their oppression in Egypt. And so everyone was commanded to go up to Jerusalem and to celebrate the Passover together. So they would do this every year. One year, when Jesus is 12 years old, he takes a little bit of a liberty. Right? And so, so they're celebrating. They're in Jerusalem. They're in this foreign city. They've spent eight days there. They've observed the celebration. They've been staying with the relatives. And the whole kind of extended family makes their way back to Nazareth together. And, and they take the first day's trip. And at the end of the first day, you, you probably know the story. Jesus isn't there. And, and Mary and Joseph had just assumed he was off playing with his cousins. And they were, you know, following someone else's family. And they get to camp at the end of the night. Jesus is not there. Can you imagine what Mary feels like as a mother? Her son is suddenly missing. And she wants to run back straight away, but it's dark and it's dangerous on the road alone, so they have to, they have to wait an extra night, camped on the road. And the next morning, they set out at 4 a.m. at first light, and they get back to Jerusalem, and she begins to frantically run around, but everything's closing down, and she doesn't find him. And so she, she has to go to bed that night, and she wakes up again the next day, and she begins to search and search and frantically look for her son. And again, she doesn't find him. I want you to imagine what's going on in her mind. Right? She runs around this foreign city looking for her lost son. Imagine her thoughts as she tries to go to sleep at night. She's exhausted from searching, but she's sick to her stomach because she knows that her son is the promised Messiah of Israel and he is missing in a foreign city in a hostile environment where the ruler of that city has put to death, he's put to death all the boys under the age of two just to try and kill Jesus. Jesus is lost in that environment. Imagine what happens when on the third day she finally makes it into the temple and she sees her son there. And she says, my son, where have you been? Don't you know? We've been worried sick, looking for you. And he turns to her and he says, didn't you know that I would be in my father's house? Why did you have to search for me? The Greek actually says, if you read this passage in Luke chapter 2, it says that Mary and Joseph, they were, they were dumbstruck. They were, they were so totally at a loss for words. They, they couldn't comprehend their emotions and the feelings that were going through themselves that they actually, they just didn't know what to say. They were almost, the, the word kind of describes being swept off your feet in confusion. And I think this is, this is the first moment where Mary touches on this thought that Jesus is, is her son, but, he, but he's also something more. Jesus is he, he's her son, but she, she was just a channel 
to bring God into this world. He, he's her son, but no one can ever truly possess the king of majesty. It's a very difficult and confusing way to feel about the son that you've raised for 12 years. Anyway, they pick up Jesus and they head back and life kind of begins to continue in Nazareth. Jesus is 30 years old before his public ministry begins. And so for close on two decades, Jesus spends most of his life as a son. And he lives in a family context. Right? He loves his parents. He loves his brothers and sisters. He plays with them. He tells them stories. He recites the Torah to them. He works with his dad in his workshop. He learns the trade of, of carpentry. And when his dad falls ill and, and probably dies, he has to stand idly by, not working any miracles of healing. This is, and guys, this is something we've had to infer in the story of Jesus' life. Right? If you read John chapter 19 from 25 to 27, you realize why we make this inference. Mary has no one left to care for her by the time Jesus dies. So Jesus makes allowance for that because her, her husband has passed away. I want you to imagine the heartache that Mary is feeling as she watches her husband die, knowing that the promised Messiah of her people is standing in the room. He's not doing anything. I want you to imagine the heartache that Jesus is feeling as he's watching his father die, who has raised him for the first two decades of his life, who has loved him and trained him and skilled him in the Lord. And he has to sit there impotently, watching and dying, knowing that he has the power, but it's not yet his time. And in obedience to God, he can't do it. After his dad dies, Jesus has to take over the family business. He begins making tables, chairs, doors, and utensils. And for year upon year upon year, life continues in a relative monotony in Nazareth. And all the while, Mary is there and she's thinking back to the promise that God gave her right in the beginning. And she's asking herself, is he really the Messiah? Because if he, if he is the Messiah, why won't he show himself? When's going to come the time that he's going to rise up and dismantle the Roman Empire? When's going to come the time when he's going to rally the Jewish people to rise up together and throw off the rule of Rome? When's that, why is he still just making tables? Can you feel the frustration that must be building in her heart as she knows this promise that God has given her, but all she sees is her son making tables? For almost two decades, she sits on the promise of God, desperately desiring more. This has been something that people have wanted for 400 years, and he's right in front of her, but nothing's happening. Desperately desiring to show the world that she wasn't deluded, that she wasn't making it up, that she wasn't lying about being impregnated by the Spirit, but her son really is the Messiah. But she can't say it, because all she's got right now is a good son who makes tables. Finally, one day something changes. Word arrives in Nazareth that there's, there's a prophet called John, and he's out by the River Jordan, and he's preaching. And he's preaching repentance, and he's calling people to be baptized for the forgiveness of their sins. And so one day, Mary and Jesus and the family, they decide to take a trip down to the Jordan River. And they go and they see John. And as Jesus walks up to John, John looks at him and he says this. He says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one that I meant when I said there's one who comes after me who surpassed me 
because he was before me. I myself didn't know him, but the reason that I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed. It's John chapter 1. And then John baptizes Jesus, and, and as Jesus rises up from the water, this dove comes down from heaven and alights on his shoulder, and the heavens open, and this voice booms out of heaven, this is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And everything is magical. Everything is, is perfect. For just a moment, everything Mary has been hoping for kind of falls into place. Her son has been acknowledged. There's been a revelation from heaven. John the prophet has, has called him out as the risen Messiah. She's finally going to be vindicated. Jesus is finally going to step into the role and the mantle that she's been waiting for him to fulfill. And instead of, of beginning to turn to the crowd and preaching to them and explaining to them the kingdom of God, Without a word to anyone, Jesus turns away and walks into the desert. And, she, and she's sitting there. What's just happened? Where's the Messiah going? What's going to happen to our family business? Who's going to provide for us? Who's going to lead our family? What's the role he's been playing? There's so many unanswered questions that are rolling in her heart. And she has no idea where he's going. She doesn't know how long he's going to be gone for. And eventually they leave the Jordan. They go back home. And they're waiting. And they're waiting. There's been this big pronouncement. And people are beginning to ask questions. She doesn't have any answers. Forty days later, Jesus comes out of the wilderness. And he arrives back home. And there's this, there's this celebration. And it's a wonderful thing. And I'm sure there are a couple of questions. Try and work out what's been going on. And sometime shortly after that, Jesus begins to take some day trips away from home and he, he walks down to the Sea of Galilee and he begins to preach and, and expound the kingdom of God to people. And people begin to follow him like they would follow a rabbi. And people are kind of following him around. He's developed a bit of a posse, right? And this is all a little bit new for Mary and the family. And then, then one day, quite early into the space, Right, there's, a, there's a big family wedding that they're invited to in Canaan. So off they go, Jesus and his new posse of disciples and the family and Mary. Off they go up to Canaan and Galilee. And at the wedding, you, you know what happens, right? They run out of wine. And, and it would have been terribly embarrassing for the, for the groom and the, and the host of the wedding to have run out of wine. And they had wedding celebrations that lasted many days. Right? And, and so Mary, her exuberance kind of gets the better of her. And she, she kind of can't control herself. And she just turns to Jesus and, and she, she gives him the problem. She says to the servants, just do whatever he tells you to do. Right? And you know the story. Jesus takes the water and turns it into wine. It's his first public miracle. John's description says this. He says, and his disciples, it was the first time his disciples put their faith in him. He doesn't say anything about Mary. Because Mary already knew that her son would do something. She already knew that he was different that he carried something. But you see, after the wedding, Jesus leaves again. And this time he doesn't come back. And Mary, as a mother, begins to feel the loss of her son, this, this boy that she has loved, this boy that she has suckled and, and raised, has left because he's got a mandate that's bigger than her. And you can feel the jumble in her heart as she begins to try and wrestle and understand what's going on. Sometime later, word reaches Mary that Jesus is nearby. 
and he's preaching at a town down the road. And so, so she and some of her other children, they, they kind of go off together because this is probably about a year later. And they, and they want to see what's been going on. They want to understand wh- where Jesus is at and what's going on and, and how, how God is at work, right? And they gather outside this person's house because that's where Jesus is. But there's a big crowd and they, and they can't get in. And so they send word in with the person in front of them. They ask him to kind of pass on the message like a broken telephone that his mother and brothers are here and they want to speak with him. And Jesus responds and he says, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? But those who do the will of my Father in heaven. And it's this, it's this gentle rebuke to Mary that, that I know that you want to spend time with me, but right now the kingdom purpose is bigger than, than our little family gathering. It's this message that, that actually, whilst we are family by blood, God is opening up the family of God to all who would follow him. And my, my ministry is now bigger than my family. And again, I can feel this thought that, that pierces into Mary's heart that says, but, but, but he's my son. He, he's my son. I raised him. Why, why do I have to share him? Can't I, can't I just have just five minutes? with my own son, just to be with him. This is the last interaction that Mary has with Jesus before the cross. And Jesus carries on with the rest of his ministry, probably goes on for another year and a bit after that. And the next time we we see Mary and Jesus together, Jesus is hanging on a cross, nailed by his hands and feet. And he's about to give his life for the sins of the world. Mary, Mary's crushed. She's standing there at the cross and she's heartbroken because the son that she loves so deeply, her son who was supposed to be the Messiah, the savior of all Israel, the man who was supposed to set them free from the yoke of the Romans, is dying on a cross. And, and everything that she had hoped for is crumbling around her. It's falling to pieces. All that she had dreamed of, the, the collapse of the Roman Empire, the, the reestablishment of the Jewish people, the, the reign of her son as king, resplendent in his glory, and her, her family kind of honored alongside him. It's, it's all coming crashing down because he's nailed to a cross and he's dying. And against all of that, everything that she can see and everything that she knows stands the promise of God. 33 years ago, God gave her the promise that her son is the Messiah. That he will save his people from their sins. That he will reign and rule in a kingdom that has no end. I want you to remember, Mary wasn't one of Jesus' disciples. She didn't get to walk with him in his ministry. She didn't get to be privy to the explanation where Jesus says, guys, I want to let you know, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be handed over, they're going to kill me, but don't worry, I'm going to rise again. She never had that inside information. All she knows is that this promise that she had from God, that her son would be the Messiah, that he would be the Savior. And there have been moments where she's seen that confirmed and affirmed. But this night, this is a dark, dark night for her. This is where the worst night of her life, everything that she's ever hoped for is crashing down around her. And there's nothing that anyone can say that will console her. Her heart is is distraught and it's fraught with despair. And I can kind of imagine her in her own room 
just trying to be away from people, and she's just on her knees, and she's fiercely in prayer before God, trying to work out what is going on. Where is your faithfulness, God? Where are you in the midst of this darkness? How is he dead? And the next day passes, the hope begins to fade because nothing happens. Everything is lost. God is silent. There have been no answers to her prayers. Everything that she's hoped for her entire life seems to have crumbled around her and died. And then on the third day, on the third day, the ladies come back. Mary Magdalene and the others, and they come back and they say that that the miraculous has happened. That Jesus has risen from the grave. And that doesn't make any sense. And the disciples are battling with this, but John and Peter, they they run to the tomb and they have a race to see who can get there. And they go and they investigate and they come back and they say, it's true. Guys, the impossible has actually happened. He's not there. He is risen. And we saw him. And she's there with the disciples because Jesus asked John to look after her. And while she's standing there, Jesus walks through the wall. And suddenly he's with them in the flesh. And her her heart soars as she, she suddenly realizes, she suddenly gets it that her son is her son no more. But, but he's the risen Savior of glory. He's Emmanuel, God in the flesh, victorious over death, and he is the gateway to eternal life. Suddenly this breaks through as she sees her son risen from the dead. And at once, she is both vindicated for the steadfast faith that she has held through, even in the darkest trials. And she is humbled to brokenness as the King of Ages embraces her. Friends, that's a rendition of the story of Mary. Some of it we have to infer, some of it is is written deeply for us in the text. But it is, for me, it's an incredible story of a woman who took on an enormous responsibility and who trusted in God even past the end. She saw her son become the world's savior. I want to leave you with three simple things that we can take out of Mary's life. And there are many more. There are many, many things we could take out of Mary's life. I want to leave you with just three, and then we're going to land it. In Mary, we see and experience Jesus through the eyes of a mother. Mary shows us the humanity of Jesus. She reminds us that our Savior was really born in the flesh, that He was a real person just like us. That Jesus was a baby who cried. That he was a toddler who crawled. That he was a boy who learned to walk and to run and to speak and to study. Mary reminds us that Jesus was a young man who cared for his family and looked after them. Who spent most of his time as a family man, learning from his parents, loving his brothers and sisters, helping around the home. That he had brothers and sisters. He knows what it is to be irritated and aggravated. He also knows what it is to love. And he knows, he knows how to mourn. He knows what it is to be tempted and how to overcome the enemy. Mary reminds us that our Savior was also a son. And that he can relate to us in everything that we've gone through. That's why the writer to the Hebrews says in chapter 4, in verse 15, he says, We don't have a high priest that we can't relate to. 
but he's been tempted in every way, just like us. And so he is able to welcome us into the presence of God because he resisted all the temptation of the enemy. Mary shows us the humanity of Jesus. The second thing that Mary teaches us is she teaches us to release to others the blessings that God has given to us. I think one of the most difficult struggles that Mary went through was the realization that whilst Jesus was her son, he was not her son. She'd been chosen by God for this incredible honor. And like, like every mother, she loved her son so deeply with every fiber of her being. But as Jesus grew up into his purpose, Mary was forced to realize that what she had enjoyed to herself and to her family for so many years now had to be shared with others. And for her, that happened in the most painful way. Imagine, just for a moment, imagine that you got to grow up with Jesus as your older brother. I was an older brother. I can tell you for certain, my sister would far have preferred Jesus to me. I wasn't a very lovely person back then. The Lord had a lot of work to do. But if Jesus was your older, imagine, imagine him as part of your childhood. Imagine how you would have been so blessed having known him that you, you just would have wanted to keep him to yourself. Right? You know, it's, it's terrible to have to, to send someone like that away and not to see them again. It's even worse when you know that they go to their death. And this is the lesson that Mary teaches us. That which God has intended for others must be released to them can't be hoarded for myself. See, for all of us, we're all made in God's image. All of us have in us, in Christ, we have a wealth of spiritual blessings that God has given to us for the benefit and the blessing of others and the people around us. Because God wants to be at work through us into their lives. That's what he's done. Mary teaches us that that which we have received from him, we need to release to others. Jesus said it like this, freely as you have received, now freely give. We need to learn that from Mary and not hoard what God has given us for ourselves. Finally, Mary teaches us this. She teaches us that faith can patiently endure without iteration. That's a big word that means repetition. One of the strongest lessons I think we can learn from Mary's life is this, that that faith can patiently endure without iteration. You see, God appears to Mary once through the angel Gabriel, and he gives her this great promise. And for 33 years, Mary carries that promise through trial and challenge. And God confirms it for her. He confirms it through prophetic words, right? She gets four confirmations through Simeon, Anna, the shepherds, and the magi. They all confirm the word that God gave to her. But that all happens within the first few weeks of Jesus' life. But for the next 33 years, she has to take that promise of God and treasure it in her heart, store it up in her heart, is what Luke 2 says she does. Because for 33 years, the enemy takes every opportunity to try and sow doubt and confusion into her heart. She asks her to question God and to take matters into her own hands. For 33 years, the enemy comes to her and he says, is God really faithful? Is he really going to deliver our people through your carpenter? Didn't you you just make that up? Didn't you just have a funny dream? Do you really expect this to happen? 
These, for 33 years, this is the faith wrestle that Mary has to go through. Even when everything seems to be wrong, because I don't think it can go more wrong than death. Mary can hold fast to the Word of God because she knows that when the King Almighty has spoken, His words are faithful and true, and that He will do what He's promised. We need to learn that from Mary, that when the King Almighty has spoken, His words are faithful and true, and that He will do what He has promised, come whatever may. Those are the three lessons I want to leave you with from the life of Mary. And I hope as we've looked at her life, you've you've seen the the story of Easter in in a slightly different way. You've recognized that what Jesus did on the cross continues to be the greatest and the most wonderful thing. But there is a woman who walked alongside him, who walked a faith journey with God that is an incredible example to us. I'm going to close for us in prayer and ask the worship team to come and join me on the stage. We're going to move into a time of worship together after this. And and just to say two things, if you would like someone to pray with you into any space we've spoken about tonight or into any any other space, you're welcome during our time of worship to come and ask one of the pastors at the front or one of your friends next to you to pray with you. If you believe you have a word for us as we engage in worship together, we believe God speaks through His body. Please come share that with us. We want to facilitate what God is going to do amongst us. But we're going to move into a time of worship and ministry together. And we're going to trust that God's going to lead us in that. Jesus, we we bless you and we thank you for what you did for us in your life. That you came and lived a life that we couldn't live. That you died on our behalf when we didn't deserve it. That you forgave us of our sins and you defeated the power of the enemy. In one glorious moment on the cross. And then you rose again to give us life everlasting and to proclaim your victory over death himself, the final enemy. We bless you for that, God. We could never thank you enough. And Lord, we thank you for your faithful servant, Mary, who stands as an example for us. And we thank you, God, that that just as Paul says that we are to imitate, imitate him as he imitated you, We can imitate Mary in in the faithful service that she gave to you. We pray, God, that where our faith falters, where it is weak, God, we pray that you would strengthen us. We pray that you would remind us that he who has promised is faithful, that he will not go back on his word, that he will lead us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He is not a man that he should lie. Thank you, God. God, firm up our faith. Lord, we pray that that where there are things that you have given to us, blessings in the Spirit, blessings that are physical, God, and and we just know we've been holding on to them because we love them so much. But actually, you've intended them for others. Lord, I pray you give us the grace to trust you and the courage to release those as you give them to us. That needs to look like ministry this evening, God. We pray that it would. If it goes so far beyond that as I trust that it will, God, give us the courage to release to others what you've given us to freely give. 
And Lord, teach us, teach us to remember that you, our Savior, lived a life just like one of us. You were like us in every way, and yet you were without sin. That you were tempted even beyond what we will ever be tempted with, and yet you remain faithful. And that we are free to come boldly before your throne of grace to receive grace and mercy in our time of need. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Lord, we lift you up and we honor you. And we lift our hearts to you. In your wonderful name we pray. Amen.